Good morning, family. Good morning, family. All right, all right, there we go. So grateful to be in your midst once again. Um, for those that don't know me, uh, my name is Wayne Penn Jr. As my brother Mike tried to promote me to president, I got a little nervous. Um, he's trying to make me a whole president, bro. I, I don't, nah, I, I got enough going on. <laughs> but I, I, he, he is indeed a brother and a friend. I'm of the notion that you don't have to know somebody long necessarily to know them well. Um, in the short time I've gotten to know him, he's, he's a true brother and friend. Uh, I can say the same for a lot of people here, um, especially your pastor, uh, David Gentino, which, by the way, I, if, I, if I ever get to a point to where I can do a sabbatical, I want to do it half as awesome as he's done it. I'm this man, like, wow. Um, we're connected at the hip. I, I'm, I'm pastoral resident at Riverside Community Church, and uh, Riverside and CPC are just, like I said, just connected at the hip. We're family. Uh, so I'm grateful to be here, and uh, with that being said, I'm also grateful for my wife. Where is she at? There, there she is. Okay, okay. Yeah, just just grateful to see her. She's lovely, and I'm trying not to get distracted looking at her throughout this message. Um, Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses one through six. Ephesians four, chapter verses one through six. It reads, "I therefore." A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. This is the word of the Lord. So aside from this passage, which is one of my favorites, another favorite passage of mine is John 17. I don't know if everybody is familiar with that specific passage. Uh, if you aren't, it is what a lot of theologians like to call Jesus' high priestly prayer. So it's basically Jesus, after the previous chapters where he's encouraging his disciples and saying, you know, let not your heart be troubled. You know, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Stay connected to me. There's going to be a whole lot of tribulation and stuff that's going to shake your foundation more or less. Uh, after he's done what he can to encourage them, he then says in John 17, basically a high priestly prayer. He prays on their behalf. And he says, you know, God, Father, I, I'm thankful for the work that you give me to complete. I'm on my way now to do that work. And I pray for those you've given me. I pray for my disciples as well as those that will believe. It's, it's just a really awesome passage. I encourage you to read it. One of my other favorite things to do while I'm reading that passage is to imagine what the reaction of those hearing that prayer, what they would think when he gets to verse 15, when he says, by the way, God, don't take them out of the world. You have to keep in mind where they were in this context. These, these are Jews under Roman oppression. They're not in a good space right now. So to hear all of this flowery stuff that Jesus says, they were probably with them up until that point. So God, Jesus, thank you. I appreciate the prayers, man. Wow, you, you of all people praying for me. Thank you so much for uh, asking God to strengthen our faith and to keep us solidified in this. Wait, don't take us out of this? Wait, I, wow, interesting. Um, don't take us out of this situation that we're in. 
Lord, wait a minute. Because for those of you that are familiar with how the disciples were thinking, a lot of them more or less viewed Jesus as his political savior. So they were thinking that this is the guy that's going to get us out from under these Roman chains. And they hear, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, God. But Jesus, why would you leave us in this? Why would you leave us in this situation? Truth be told, some of us this morning might be asking the same question. No, we're not under Roman oppression, but there's a lot of mess going on right now. I don't know if you've been paying any attention. Uh, there's a lot going on. Why, God, would you leave us, your sons and daughters, in this? Why? Why, why leave us in the midst of a pandemic that we thought we were over? Why? why? Why leave us in this? Why leave us in the middle of a country where, if we're honest, it seems like it's in a constant state of political and cultural civil war? Why leave us in this? Why? Why leave us in a place where vaccinations and masks, arguing over those, have led to literal fistfights? Literally. I'm not exaggerating. Why? Why leave us in this? Why, why is it that with all of the tragic events that are happening in Afghanistan, I see people on Twitter arguing over which presidential administration is more responsible for it? Why? Why is it when I even mention the words uh, social justice or systemic racism that I'm labeled as a woke leftist cultural Marxist, right? Or why is it when I use the wrong pronoun then I'm more or less labeled as this right-wing, homophobic, transphobic bigot. Why? I, I'm going to stop before I get in more trouble. <laughs> Y'all get the picture, right? Why leave us in this? Why? If, if we're honest, we's tired. Not, not tired, tired. <laughs> tired, Lord, I'm tired. I'm tired, I'm weary. I'm seeing so much foolishness and chaos around me each and every day. Tired. And I don't mean the kind of tired that like a, a nap fixes. Right? I mean, you know, the Sunday afternoon nap with this lovely rain in the background is not going to fix this kind of tired. Some of us are tired. Most of us are tired of COVID. Eight to the men. Most of us are tired of COVID. Most of us are tired of masks and protocols and regulations and arguments over vaccines and whether or not masks should be mandated, implemented, whatever. Most of us are tired of that. Some of us are tired of change. Like, why does stuff keep changing? Why? Why is there this constant state of change, you know, and go, go down the, the, the level of whatever it is you want to think of that on in your home, in schools, in your communities, in churches? Why does stuff keep changing around here? Why is stuff so complicated all of a sudden? Some of us, if we're really honest, are tired of each other. Oops. Some of us are tired of certain people, right? Some of us are tired of having to deal with differing opinions, differing personalities. Not everybody's personalities mesh. You know, we have differences of personality, differences of opinion on how matters should be handled, differences of philosophy. Just differences. Some of us are tired of dealing with people. It could be that somebody offended you. It could be somebody hurt you. Right? I heard, heard a joke. You know, it says, you know, the scripture where two or three are gathered, you know, God is in the midst. 
where two or three are gathered, sin will also be in the midst. <laughs> it's, it's a bona fide fact. This brings me to another kind of gut-checking but also probably obvious statement. We as the church, and I'm talking, you know, the, the big C, not the, the local church here, CPC or Riverside or any local church. I'm talking the big C, universal. We as the church are not as unified as we think. We're not. And I don't say that, don't misunderstand me and think that like the presence of conflict is why I make this statement. Because the presence of conflict does not mean that there's no unity. If anything, I would be a bit more concerned if there weren't any conflict. Because then that means that there's uniformity, but not unity. There's a difference between those two things. But I, I want to deal this morning with kind of this tendency that I've seen in a lot of instances, particularly in the church, where we think that, number one, the presence of conflict means the absence of unity. That's a false statement. But also that conflict will somehow or another magically work itself out on its own. Like if we just leave it alone, it'll just go away, right? That, that, that's not true. I think that tendency, that mindset, comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of what real biblical unity actually is. And again, this is not to single out any one church. It's not to single out CPC. It's not to single out Riverside. By and large, it seems that much of this, much of the church really tends to kind of buy into this mindset. If there's conflict present, that means that unity can't be a thing. You know, because Christians aren't supposed to have conflict, right? Christians aren't supposed to disagree. Christians aren't supposed to, you know, get into arguments. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to be happy-go-lucky, everybody gets along, kumbaya, all that kind of stuff. This is misguided thinking. And it needs to change because I don't know that it's right for us to settle for a peace mirage. Right? Y'all know what a mirage is, right? It's, it's, it's when you're seeing something that you think you're seeing but you're really not seeing. The absence of conflict does not always mean peace. And the presence of conflict does not mean that there's no unity. Is it right for us to settle for a peace mirage? I don't think so. Is it right for us to think that, you know, if there's no conflict, everything is okay? Is it right for us to think that there, if, if there is conflict, that there's no unity? I don't think that's the case. Should we be satisfied with a peace mirage? I would argue no. And the main reason I would argue no is because the God that we just spent this time worshiping did not settle for that. And the conflict that was ultimately and inevitably uh, more or less manifested between him and us as mankind, God had every right to stay on the throne and say, hey, you know what? Uh, this conflict that arose because of you all's sin, I'm just going to let that work itself out on its own. He could have done that. He literally could have left us to our own demise and said, this conflict that you all initiated I want nothing to do with. It'll just magically go away. That's not the God that we serve. That's not what he did. From the foundation of the world, he actually made up in his mind to repair this breach. And he leaned into the conflict. Literally leaned in. God the Son, Jesus Christ, came down from his throne into the thick of things to resolve this conflict. A conflict, again, 
that he didn't initiate. He came to redeem the very ones that had wronged him. Ephesians 1 and 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And as a result of this, in Romans 5 and 1, if you're familiar with that passage of scripture, it says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this peace, this peace that's mentioned, did not come by God and man sitting at a table signing a peace treaty. That's not how it went down. This peace was purchased by blood. Purchased by blood. I recall Acts, uh, in Acts 20, verse 28, where Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and he's literally saying, look, fellas, I need y'all to give your lives for this church. I need you all to watch and care for the flock because this is the church that Jesus obtained with his blood. It's that serious. It's that real. You all need to guard the flock and fight and preserve this church because it's so precious to Jesus that he shed his blood for it. And I realize that for many of us, we'd, we'd like this peace that's easily attainable. We, we, we would like a peace where all we would need to do is, I don't know, uh, select the right president or implement the right policy or, you know, sign into law the right law or perhaps silence the right opposing voices that don't think or talk like us. Some of us wish it were that easy, if we're honest, but it's not. The peace that Jesus spoke of, uh, both in Acts 20 and 28 that Paul mentioned, as well as in John 16 and 33, that peace did not come so easy. Nor is it meant to be maintained so easy. This is not a peace that's absent of conflict and pain. Jesus says in John 16 verses 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Period. It's inescapable. You will have tribulation, but take heart because I've overcome the world. So it's a peace that Jesus has purchased with his blood, and it's good, and it's great, and it's amazing, and it's glorious, but it's not without conflict and pain. It's peace obtained by blood. I really want us to get this visual in our minds. It's not some clean-cut thing. It's, it's peace that was obtained with blood. The peace that should characterize our unity specifically is gloriously messy. That, that's a good thing, actually. And I also believe that this, this, this kind of bloody mess picture when it comes to peace, it's a great backdrop for our text today in Ephesians. And I want to delve into that now. For those of you that aren't familiar with Ephesians, although I doubt that given the great teaching that you all get at this church, um, Ephesians, a commentator named Francis Folk says that it can be broken down into two halves, uh, Ephesians 1 through 3 and Ephesians 4 through 6. If you want to kind of look at it from this perspective, chapters 1 through 3 can more or less be seen as kind of a seminary lecture, right? There, there's a bunch of seminarians here in the room, right? No? I thought there were a bunch. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Um, seminary lectures are not the most entertaining thing. They're not. Um, and I hope that's not offensive to any professors are here. I'm just, I'm just stating the fact. But 
Chapters one through three reads like a seminary lecture. Basically, it's, it's a seminary lecture breaking down the doctrine of this great eternal purpose that God has, in essence, put into motion. I took a covenant theology class in the spring, and my professor, Dr. Blair Smith, shout out to him, he said that at the heart of covenant theology is the notion that God will be our God and that we will be his people. Ephesians 1 through 3, those chapters are basically a breakdown of that simple truth. I will be your God and you will be my people. Chapters 4 through 6 doesn't really read like a seminary lecture. It more or less reads like an instruction manual. So it's a bit more practical. So it, it's basically, it helps you to practically put together what's in front of you. That's the purpose of an instruction manual, right? So in other words, the first half of Ephesians, it more or less sounds like a lecture on what we've been given and what we've been called to. The second half, Ephesians 4 through 6, sounds like an instruction manual that tells us what we are to do with what we've been given and what we've been called to. Everybody following? Sounds good. All right. So the calling. What have we been called to? Ephesians 4 verse 1. Paul says, we've been called in essence to sonship. That's what we've been called to. We've been called to be children of God. Going back a little bit to Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6, it says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and this is coming from the CSV, by the way, in the heavens and in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one, we who are in Christ are in the family of God. That's mind-boggling. That the God who created everything, framed it all. Y'all have heard it before, right? Put everything together. Regulates it. You know, does nothing outside of the counsel of his own will. That God calls us family in Christ. We're family. And because we're family, now... This may just be a thing that I'm familiar with. I don't know. But my mom and dad used to tell me all the time, look, because you got the last name Penn on you, there's a certain way you ought to act. I don't know if anybody else has heard that. Maybe it's just a Southern thing. I don't know. But if there's a name attached to you, you, you need to act in a certain way. Don't go embarrassing me in front of all these folk and act in any kind of way. You're a Penn, right? Because we're in the family of God, there's a certain way that we are to act and to behave, and to walk. And Paul starts to delve into this in uh, chapter 4, verse 2 of Ephesians. So because now we're God's kids, we're to walk, in verse 2 he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now I don't want us to skip over those characteristics so quickly. Because often, you know, when we hear humility, we hear patience and gentleness, meekness. Okay, got it. Yeah, we, we hear you. We've heard that before. We know that. Do we really know what that entails, though? Like, do we really understand what humility and patience and meekness and gentleness really mean and how that actually should play out in our lives? I don't think we should skip over that so quickly. 
Jesus, as we all know, or should know, Jesus epitomizes all of these characteristics. But I'm just going to kind of go down the road. So humility. Jesus epitomizes humility. He is the prime example of what humility is. He says of himself in Matthew 11 and 29, that was read earlier, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly. Now, I'm not the smartest guy anywhere. If anybody had a right to brag, if anybody had a right to boast and puff themselves up and be kind of a narcissist, it'd be Jesus because he's God. He's kind of a big deal. And yet he displays humility. Okay, I heard a quote from a preacher. It didn't get... Now, it didn't get a good response, uh, you know, this morning. I thought it was pretty clever, but I'll see if it works better on you all. Worship is the only thing that God can't give himself. Because to worship somebody or something is to acknowledge that person is higher than you. And that's not something God can do. No? Okay, all right. I thought it was dope, but... The highest of the highs came and experience the lowest of the lows. Humble himself, and as Philippians 2 and 5 says, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We who are in Christ are called to walk in that kind of humility. Not this false humility that, you know, we tend to fall into. I myself am a big uh, repeat offender of this, where I kind of try to get the impression that I'm humble by saying the right things. Right, Just giving the impression that I'm humble. But that kind of humility really doesn't cost me anything. Jesus' humility cost him everything. Came down from his throne, literally came down from his throne to earth and subjected himself to being beaten and punched and kicked and whipped and spit on and having his beard pulled out. I don't have much of that to demonstrate, but came and dealt with all of that, subjected himself to the abuse by his own creation. This is the same God that at the beginning breathed into man, gave them, gave us the breath of life, formed us, created us from the dirt, and now he comes and then subjects himself to being abused by that dirt. Humility. He epitomizes it. And that humility should cost us something. If we're to walk in that Christ-like humility, it should cost us something. And you can insert whatever you want into that cost line there. Our lives, our desires, our ambitions, our goals. It should cost us something. Jesus also epitomizes gentleness and meekness, right? Now this gentleness and meekness is just not just limited to being nice. Uh, Francis Folks, again, I'm quoting him, says this meekness or this gentleness, it's closely connected to the spirit of submissiveness. Now submissiveness, we see this, uh, Paul touches on this again in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21, you know, where he starts to break down family relationships. You know, submitting to one another, wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, both of those are forms of submission, by the way. That's the kind of spirit, more or less, of what Paul is saying. Jesus 
epitomized this spirit of submissiveness. And it's not weakness. Contrary to the connotation that gentleness and meekness might give off, it is far from being weak. And as another theologian notes, his name is C.O. Mitten, he says, meekness in the New Testament sense is the spirit of one who is so absorbed in seeking some worthy goal for the common good that he or she refuses to be deflected from it by slights, injuries, or insults directed at themselves personally. Jesus' meekness and gentleness was tenacious. It was strong. I, I don't know about any of, of you, but thinking about what Jesus actually endured and allowed himself to take, it takes a strong brother to take what he took. Specifically from the people he created. That's a, that's a strong brother. That is not weakness at all. He was so determined to accomplish the work of atonement and redemption that he took insults, injuries, far on a level far above any of us would ever even think of taking. Some of us get upset by when we get cut off driving here to the church. <laughs> Jesus allowed himself to be whipped and scourged and abused and brutalized by his own creation. And he said, I'm so determined to complete this work that I'm willing to endure whatever it takes to do it. That's his gentleness and meekness. He wasn't swayed by the injuries or wrongs inflicted on him by his own creation, but he was determined to do the will of his father for the good of humanity. I don't care how bad y'all do me, I'm going to finish this work. Jesus also epitomizes patience. His patience with humanity is, is, is blatantly obvious, right? But I think Paul in particular has a personal connection to this. He says in, verse, in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 16, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Take a page from Paul's book for a moment and think about how patient God has been with you. Think about it. I know I can say personally he has been extremely patient with me. Much more than I deserve. That kind of patience, the patience to deal with the most wretched of sinners, that kind of patience. So humility, gentleness, meekness, patience, and the last part of verse two says, bearing with one another in love. Now the phrase bearing with is derived from a Greek word which literally means to hold oneself up against. So when I use Devin as an example this morning and I'm using him again, it literally means you supporting somebody else's body weight against your own. So if Devin were to be standing right here, right, and he's leaning back against me, almost kind of like a trust fall, my bearing with him means that I'm holding up his body weight. That's what we're called to do. Bear with one another. And we're to do it in love. You know, not, in, not out of obligation or out of annoyance. You know, oh, I got to put up with you. Ugh. It's out of love. T. 
T.K. Abbott says it involves bearing with one another's weaknesses, not ceasing to love one's neighbors or friends because of those faults in them which perhaps offend or displease. Now, I know I may seem like a nice guy, and I think my wife would agree that I'm pretty nice, but there's something about me that will get on your nerves if you get to know me. I promise you. I, I promise you. I ask her. <laughs> something about me will get on your nerves. Something about me will offend you. Something about every one of us will offend somebody. None of us are exempt from that. Bearing with one another is us being able to put up with those things in love. On that note, what do all of these characteristics, like I said, humility, gentleness, meekness, patience, forbearance, what do all of these things have in common, aside from the fact that Jesus epitomizes all of them? What do they have in common? They can't be done by yourself. It's really hard to demonstrate humility and patience and gentleness and meekness on yourself in the mirror. It's just not possible. You need others in order to fully demonstrate and live these things out. Now the problem with that is that others are what make it so complicated. Right? It wouldn't be so complicated if it was just me. Because I, I agree with me for the most part. I'm not any different from me. I can get along with me in most instances. Right? Others make it complicated because they think differently. They look differently. They come from different backgrounds. They're of different races and ethnicities. They're, they're of different bents. They're, they have sin. They have pain. They have conflict. They have baggage. Others complicate this. It's more difficult to be gentle and patient and humble and loving and forbearing with others because they're others. And this is nothing new. I think we make the mistake sometimes of thinking that like the early church had all the answers and they had no problems and they, they, they were just, they, they were killing the game, right? They had issues. Paul's audience that he's addressing this to wasn't much different from ours. Yeah, racially, ethnically, yes. But as far as the socioeconomic differences, the racial ethnic tensions, the, the, the divisions and the schisms and isms that were present, just like they're present here, they were present then too. The audience back then that Paul was addressing this to was not much different from us. It's nearly as messy. And yet, it's, it's in this messy audience and in this messy context that Paul says, y'all need to bear with one another. Y'all need to exhibit Christ-like humility and gentleness and meekness and patience. But I'm tired, Wayne. Bro, I'm, I'm so tired. I am so weary having to do this in the midst of all this chaos and foolishness that I see every day. I'm tired. Where am I going to find the energy to conjure up this unity that you're talking about? Where? Well, I mean, the, the good news is is that you, you really don't have to conjure up the unity. It's not something that you yourself create. That's the good news. We're not called to create the unity here. That's already been done. 
through Jesus. He's the one that has given us the unity. But what we are called to do is maintain it and preserve it. It's the difference between having to come up with the payment for a house versus being given a house and just being asked to maintain the house. It's still work. But the work on the front end has already been done. Our efforts don't bring about the unity of the spirit. I don't care how nice or how unifying your efforts and intents might be, you can't bring about this unity. It's only through the work of God that the unity is brought about, but we have been given a charge to maintain it. And Paul says we should be eager to maintain this unity. And the Greek word translated eager, by the way, means to exert oneself, to endeavor, to give diligence. It is going to take effort. Yes, it's, it's going to take blood, sweat, and tears for us to maintain this unity that's been given. Why all this exertion and diligence? Why, why do we need to put all this energy into it? Besides all of the you know, complications with others that I mentioned, there's a real devil with real minions that is doing everything he can to actively sabotage this unity. Make, make no mistake, the devil is real. Spiritual warfare is a reality. And we need to exert ourselves and be diligent about maintaining this unity. And Paul touched on this in Ephesians 6, specifically verses 11 through 12. It should be familiar to most of us. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, or against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Don't get it twisted. The devil is a real enemy. Spiritual warfare is a reality, but the victory is already assured. Was it, was it not Jesus who said that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against his church? We can be confident in the work that God has done. So we don't exert ourselves and put energy into maintaining this unity from a losing side. The victory has already been won. One of my favorite Christian rappers, KB, says, uh, you know, we don't fight for the W or the win. We fight from the W or the win. It's already been assured that we've won. So the work that we're doing is from that assured and secure place. And what has he established, by the way? God has established oneness. Oneness. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Paul, and you're going to notice a word that repeats itself throughout these three verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Are y'all seeing a pattern here? One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The ironic thing is, those others that make the unity so complicated to maintain are the very ones that God uses to make the unity a reality. 
even as we complicate and muck up the process, God still uses us <laughs> to bring it about. It's a beautiful, glorious mess that God has called us all to take part in. And Paul kind of touches on this a little bit, you know, with the differences of who God uses. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, it says he gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul also touched on this in 1 Corinthians 12, where he talked about us being the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Many members, right, but one body, interdependent on each other. Because God made it that way. If one member suffers, we all suffer. You ever stubbed your big toe? Maybe not the big one, but you, you ever stubbed your toe? That affects everything. It's amazing how that one little member can affect your entire body. It'll wreck your day <laughs> if you stub your toe. It's the same with the body of Christ. If one member suffers, we all suffer. And the foot can't say to the hand, well, I don't need you. And the foot can't even say, I'm not needed. No body part can discount themselves or any other body part. That's not how this works. I can't say I'm not needed, and I definitely can't say you're not needed. Whether we like it or not, we're all needed for the body to function effectively. We are many members, but one body. So as I conclude, look, communion with the Trinity, communion with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is what we've been given through the atoning work of Jesus. Thank God for that. We've been given that unity. And as a body, we've been given that unity specifically under the headship of Jesus. But the unity that is demonstrated by the Trinity is what we're striving towards. We've been given communion with the Trinity. Now, through the work of the Spirit in us, we are living our lives in such a way where we're trying to work towards that unity that they demonstrate. Real unity, as I said before, is not maintained by the absence of conflict. Conflict is just a part of it. It's not maintained by the absence of conflict, but rather by the presence of God. And experiencing the presence of God requires us to be present with each other. It just doesn't work any other way. Yes, you can have your private time with God on your own. I don't, I don't discourage that. I do encourage that. But there's something different and something even fuller when we experience God's presence together, collectively. And he intended it that way. And not just being in the room with each other either, but actually being genuinely present and bearing with one another in love. At the end of the day, family, we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to strive to maintain this unity? Is this unity that I've been given worth maintaining? Is it worth the exertion? Is it worth the energy? Is it worth the effort? Is it worth 
the blood, sweat, and tears to maintain it? Am I willing to walk this out with my brothers and sisters? Am I willing to do it? I want to encourage you to answer yes to that question because we've been given grace through the Holy Spirit to walk this thing out. And he assures us that he'll give us the strength, he'll give us the power, he'll give us the patience, he'll give us what we need to do it. We just got to be willing. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful once again for your word that gives us so much, your word that we can lean on and depend on to really know and understand you better. God, we are thankful for the unity that you purchased with your blood. Jesus, thank you so much for being willing to endure all that you endured to give us true peace and to put us in this position where we can now maintain the unity that we already have. Father, help us. Some of us are so weary. Some of us are so tired. Some of us are just so fed up with all that we're seeing around us and the mess and the brokenness and the dysfunction that just seems to pervade every aspect of our lives. We ask you, God, to let us not be weary in well-doing, but help us to lean and to rest in you. You said yourself, God, that you were gentle and you were lowly in heart and that we would find rest for our souls. Help us, God, to rest in you, even as we strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.